Now, we have uh, two more weeks after this on Genesis in this uh, kind of short series on the beginnings uh, of uh, our Bible's uh, important stuff. And uh, last uh, week we were in Genesis 3. We're there for the second time today. And I'm going to read from verse 8. Uh, The bit before that describes humanity's rebellion against God, their rejection of his rule. And then verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. But to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let us reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Inside the service sheet, you'll see some headings that I think are uh, what uh, Genesis 3, part 2 is all about. But we need God to speak to us, uh, not me, and we need soft hearts. So let me ask God in prayer for that. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful and foundational material. We pray that you would speak to every soul in this room. And we pray that every heart in this room would be open and willing, not only to listen, 
but to live life in light of these truths. And we ask that for your glory, for the restoration of humanity is all about your glory and in the Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 3 describes humanity's rebellion against God and God's judgment on humanity and the world as a result of that rebellion. Now, let me just underscore that principle right at the beginning. Notice the order. God's judgment, which is real and frightening, is consequent or because of our rebellion. It does not precede human rebellion. Humanity's rebellion is to reject God's rule over humanity. It is to say no to the rule of God and to put ourselves as humanity in the place of God. It is not rule-breaking to rebel against God. It is rule-making. It is to take the place of God. And that happened in human history when first man and woman rebelled against God, rejecting his rule. It happened. And this is historical narrative we are reading. I know many of you have questions about that, have asked them. We'll answer some of them tonight. This happened. And it happens. It is the way humanity is wired. We are born with a rebellious spirit against God. By nature, by birth, we are in rebellion to God. And the consequence of humanity's rebellion, the consequence of humanity rejecting God's rule, is seen in a world of broken relationships. Supremely, the broken relationship between God and humanity. We are separated from him under his judgment for now and for eternity. God's judgment is also seen in the broken relationships between humans with our fellow humanity, whether globally or nationally or locally or often for us very personally, we experience the breaking of humanity's respect for their fellow humanity. God's judgment is seen thirdly in the broken relationship between humanity and the rest of God's creation. Rather than creatively working the earth, we exploit it. We do not care. Uh, don't be distracted by me collapsing all around me. Where was I? We see in our world God's judgment in the broken relationship between humanity and the world. God said, look, humanity, there's my earth. Cultivate it. Nourish it. 
And yet we've ravaged it and exploited it and destroyed it. And God said, this earth is your habitat in which you will thrive. Go to work and enjoy it. In the first service, there was a fellow here who just flown from the other side of the world where he's been working for the last week, and he just looked knackered. It's a world of work in our world. And uh, our world is harsh because it is full of disease and death and decay, and we're all going to die. Cheery stuff. Cheery stuff. But it's true. It's true, isn't it? That's the world we live in. A broken relationship between God, humanity, between humanity and their fellow humanity, between humanity and the earth. And to dust, you will all return. That's real. Many people become Christians because the Bible speaks into the reality of humanity's condition. Rebellion and judgment. That's uh, what uh, chapter 3 is all about. But uh, it also describes God's mercy, his gracious kindness toward humanity. And uh, remember, this is narrative history, the history of humanity. So when in history does God's mercy toward rebellious humanity kick in? When did it happen in history? Right at the point humanity rebelled. It would have been reasonable, surely, would it not, for God to have toyed with humanity, to have considered long and hard whether those he had created in his image that had rejected his rule instantly were worth redeeming. Shouldn't God have made us sweat, considered our future, God did not consider for a moment whether or not he would redeem humanity. He immediately determined to save humanity. Now, why? Well, there are two answers to that question. Here is the first, which is true and important and the most common one. Because he is kind and loving and gracious. His judgment is just but not vindictive. He cannot bear or harbor resentment. He is kind and gracious. And we must never play down the fact that God wants his relationship with humanity restored at a personal level. Never play down the fact that God wants a relationship with you. But let's not cheapen grace and get too pally with God too fast. For the primary reason God determined to redeem humanity right at that moment humanity rebelled, the supreme reason was God's desire for his own glory. Now, God created this world to reveal his glory. 
He created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation to supremely reveal his glory. And God will have his glory again. And so he said about it on day one. Now let's look at some of the signs of God's mercy in this chapter. First, God searches for humanity. Adam and Eve are in the garden hiding from God, but God is looking for them. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now there's God's grace in operation. That's what grace involves or works in this way. God searches for us. When the long-promised Savior did eventually come, what did he come to do? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We talk often about people searching for God. But the truth is, the real search goes from God to humanity. God seeking us. God coming into people's lives again and again who never have looked for him. But he finds them. And he finds them out. Again and again, as a a minister of a church, I find that people find themselves in a church on a Sunday for reasons they don't quite know how it all happened. And again and again, God finds them. He finds them out. And he turns them to Jesus. Second sign of God's mercy is he clothes Adam and Eve. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve's attempts to hide their shame with a fig leaf hardly did the job. God in his gracious, practical goodness clothes them. Now, just think of a very practical way that as Christians we express what it means to be redeemed humanity. We do things in our world like clothe people who have no clothes, feed people who have no food. It's what God did right at the start. Now, these evidences of God's mercy, immediately he sets about rescuing humanity. He looks for them, he clothes them, but the focus point of God's mercy is God's promise in verses 14 and 15 that a Savior uh, will uh, come. Now, I get to tell you some marvelous stuff this morning from verses 14 and, uh, and 15. And, and if you kind of drifting off and say, oh, this isn't marvelous, it's going to be dull, and you're a Christian, well, wake up. Wake up to the fact that God in his mercy has shone the light into your life. Astonishing. So let's study verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, deceived, tempted Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the context here is Adam and Eve standing in the dock before God, tried and found guilty, waiting to be sentenced. 
And before he pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve and on humanity, God turns first to the serpent and pronounces sentence on him. The serpent, well, the rest of the Bible makes it clear he is Satan or the devil. Satan, the fallen angel of God, a highly intelligent spiritual being that rebelled against God. It is Satan that tempts Eve. This exalted spirit being in his rebellion against God comes into the world using a serpent as his agent in order to tempt man, humanity, the peak of God's creation with his insidious questioning about the authority of God. And fallen humanity then and ever since is in the grip of Satan. Satan is the prince of this world. He is the controlling force in this world. He is as real as Jesus is real. He is the controlling force of every human life that has not been redeemed through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded, actively blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. The unbeliever is in the grip of Satan. Satan holds humanity in our world still in rebellion against God and their fellow man. And therefore, God's plan to rescue humanity must, by necessity, destroy Satan and his grip over our lives. Or to use the language of Genesis 3, there needs to be a serpent crusher. And so the judgment falls in Genesis 3.14 on Satan, "'Curse to you above all livestock.'" And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, let's not get sidetracked as to whether before the snakes had four legs like lizards. That's not the author's point. The author's point is that Satan will be utterly humiliated. Because of what he has done, God will treat him as the lowest of the low. And notice that the curse on him is without deliverance all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What precisely is being said here? That from the moment of the fall or our rebellion as humanity, there is strife, conflict in the heart of humanity. Satan led Eve into rebellion against God, then Adam, and since then Satan's grip is on every human heart. Why? Because we are her descendants. Until there comes a descendant of Eve, a man born of woman, over whom Satan will have no mastery or control, a man who will crush Satan's head 
and destroy him. And that is precisely what is promised here. In the second half of verse 15, there is a shift from plural. Notice that your descendants and hers, that is all of fallen humanity, to the singular he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He will crush your head. Now that means that the destruction of Satan will be bloody. And the serpent crusher, the savior, will suffer. It will be a victory won at enormous cost, enormous personal cost to the one who wins the victory. The serpent, Satan, will do his worst. He will strike out with fury at the heel of the man. He may even nail nails through his heels. And he will think he has killed him. But the very blows that Satan inflicts on his adversary will be the nails in his own coffin. You will strike his heel and he will crush you. He will destroy you under his feet. When humanity rebelled and the relationship with God was broken, God promised a savior, a serpent crusher, to defeat Satan, to break his dominion, his hold on humanity. God promised to send a savior. Now, that's Genesis 3. This is a big book. My book is bigger than yours. I can't see it anymore, hence I've got a big, large print Bible. There's a long way from Genesis 3 to when the Savior comes. And the story of the Bible, which is the story of humanity from the perspective of God, is the search for this Savior. Who is he? When will he come? How long, O Lord? Now, many of you, if you are Christians, are about to go into slumber zone because you know the answer is Jesus. One of the great dangers for us as Christians is that we know the answer but no longer feel the answer. Or the import of it in our lives. Now I want to take you through Genesis to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in five minutes. Not to give you a potted biblical theology. But to take you through thousands of years of waiting. And I want you to put yourself, if you are a Christian, in the mindset of the people of God through history who longed for this Savior to come. How privileged we are. Genesis 4 begins, and we'll not go a chapter at a time. Genesis 4 begins with Cain. Is it him? No. Sin crouches at his door. Is it his brother? No. Seth, all we read about Seth, is about endless generations, hundreds of years. Is it Noah? 
Perhaps he will crush the serpent and reverse the effects of the curse. All that God did with Noah is say to us, with a rainbow to remind us, I will come. Is it Abraham, that giant of Old Testament history? God calls Abraham, which means father, to be Abraham, which means father of a mighty nation. Surely it is him. No. What about the child of promise, Isaac? The son that he could not have, is he the serpent crusher? He is the child of promise, but he is not the child of promise. What of Joseph? The end of Genesis. He is a son who suffers unjustly, whose heel is bruised, but who ultimately rescues God's people But he is not the Savior. Moses, the great deliverer who wrote Genesis and read Genesis to the people of God as they hovered on the edge of the promised land. I wonder if the crowds whispered to each other, is he the one? But he died. So did Joshua, who led them into the promised land, And the great judges, surely it is David, the one to whom God turned and said, This boy is a man after my own heart. David, who stood in front of Goliath, the epitome of human tyranny and evil, and struck him down, but not on his heel. David pointed to the Savior, but David was a sinner. The great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They said astonishing things. Like, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. And imagine if you were the people of God back then. When it was tough and Isaiah was preaching. Then I would say to my wife and family. When are we going to see this great light? And the dad would turn to his son around the fire and he would say, Son, listen to this. For unto us a child is born who will be a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, a mighty God, an everlasting father. Just wait, son. He'll come. When, Dad? Then the exile. These wonderful prophecies about one like a son of man coming into the presence of God and being given a mighty crown. So now, the end of the exile, 500 years of silence. And then, In human history, the Savior comes. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 3.
I just forgot for a moment where Luke was. It's a bit worrying, isn't it? Here we are. It's called a senior minister's moment. Let me show you why Jesus is the one from Luke. Notice first Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. He identifies with the plight of humanity. He will bear our sins. Notice the voice from heaven, verse 22. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And with these words, God kind of drags all the prophecies of the Old Testament into a spotlight that focuses on this man. What would you expect to see when the one who will save humanity, that is, to be a descendant of Eve, has arrived? You would expect to see a genealogy. So we get one in Luke chapter 3. The genealogy begins, verse 23, Jesus. It ends, verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, fully man, the son of God, fully God. The last bit of evidence that Jesus is the serpent crusher or the savior, what does he immediately do? Chapter 4 of Luke Full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Immediately, the one who will crush the devil or Satan goes to him to pick a fight. What does Satan say to Jesus How does he tempt him? In exactly the same way and with exactly the same words as the Satan at the beginning of humanity tempted Eve. God surely did not say the same words. And yet this time to the Son of God who did not yield to temptation. These adversities spar together in the desert. Verse 13 of chapter 4, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that opportune time, the cross, Genesis 3, 15 points to the cross when Satan would strike the heel of Christ That is the suffering of the Savior on the cross. But Christ would strike Satan's head through his death and glorious resurrection. When Christ died, when the Savior died, he suffered terribly. Satan bruised his heel. Visually on the cross, that is seen in the fact that in a crucifixion, Nails were nailed into the victim's heels to cause maximum pain and discomfort. 
But Satan did his worst. He struck out with fury at the heel of his adversary. At the very blows that Satan inflicted on his adversary were the nails in his own coffin. You see, when the nails were hammered into Christ on the cross and all the wrath that was behind these nails, God's judgment, as the nails were driven through his sinless hands, and as the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son of God, as the Son of God bore all the sin of human hearts in the grip of Satan, the very nailing of that to the cross became the means of the redemption of humanity and the destruction of Satan. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And when Jesus Christ cried on the cross, it is finished, Satan was defeated. Now that leaves us with an obvious question. If the serpent's head was crushed at the cross, why does evil continue in our world? Why are the effects of the curse on creation at the fall still with us? What's the holdup? Satan still prowls around like a lion, seeking people to devour. Why? He still holds the minds of unbelievers in the grip of darkness. Why? Let me illustrate it like this. The Second World War ended to all intents and purposes on the 6th of June, 44 D-Day. From that moment, the war was won. But the fighting still continued, and some of the bloodiest battles were still fought. The Battle of the Bulge, the war in the Far East, even though the war was won. And that is a fair illustration of the circumstances we live in now in relation to God's rescue plan for humanity. The war was won at the cross, but it is not over yet. Jesus will return to complete his victory won at the cross. He will return as king and judge in triumphant glory to consummate his victory. Now, as we finish, let me set out four clear, simple applications. You'll see them on the sheet. First, encouragement for God's people. If you are a Christian, God's promise to redeem humanity is true. Not in a hypothetical or objective sense, but in a personal, subjective, real sense. God has kept his promise. He has come. He came to seek and to save. He searched for you and he found you. And because you have put your faith in him, he has saved you. He saved you because he is kind and gracious and loving 
and he relishes his relationship with you. But do not treat his grace casually, for he saved you supremely to glorify his name. So bow before him in his majesty with a deeply thankful heart. Think often of what he has saved you from. And think often of what he has saved you for. And the fact that God has kept his promise in sending a Savior means that he will finish the job. The stuff of Genesis 3, the effect of our broken relationship as Christians, we still struggle with that, the dirt in our lives. But God will finish the job. He will clean you up and me. If you want to know what the new creation is like, two weeks' time, we're there with Robert Murdoch. I guess maybe not literally. Maybe. There's a very moving song in Les Mis, uh, Les Miserables, by Jean Valjean. Uh, it's a wonderfully moving piece of music. Bring me home. And he will. He will finish the job. Hope for humanity and the world. Just think of the events of the past couple of weeks. It's a striking thing, isn't it, when a city like Brussels, which is like Edinburgh, is in shutdown. It's frightening. What is the great crying need of humanity? A change of heart. God's image restored again in humanity that we might love, not harm one another. How will that be achieved? We need to pray earnestly for our political leaders as they work tirelessly to make this world a better and safer place. But they cannot save the world. The power of the human spirit, strong as it is at the moment, cannot save the world. Thousands of people singing another country's national anthem in genuine human compassion and solidarity and empathy cannot save humanity. We will not beat cancer. We will not stop dying. There is no hope for humanity if that hope is in our hands. But God has come in Jesus. Hope for humanity and the world. Real hope. Radical hope. Eternal hope. And so 
Thirdly, there is urgency to our evangelism. For God will send his Son again, and those who have not believed in him as Savior will be given over to God's judgment in everlasting hell. People in our families, people in churches, people in our streets, our work, our friends. So tell them of Jesus. Why would a loving God send people to hell? The answer is he doesn't. People choose to go to hell because they will not stop rebelling against God. They will not realize their need of salvation. They will not turn to Jesus. It took a long time for the Savior to come, but he has come. It will take a long time for the Savior to return. Why? Because God will resist sending his Son for as long as the divine compassionate, merciful heart of God can resist restoring his glory ultimately and finally because his desire is that more people will come to trust in his son. We're all dying. What eternity will you choose? Hell with God's judgment unleashed anew for eternity. Or heaven, the new creation, in the radiance of God's glory. The clock is ticking on humanity, but the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, in your hearts, I can see in your faces. There are people whom you love in that situation. Well, let's turn collectively to the God who saved you and pray that he will seek and save them. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled before your word. And your description of the state of humanity. We are marvel at your plan and purposes to redeem us. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, we bow humbly before your majesty and acknowledge the intimacy of our relationship with you. but kneel before the astonishing revelation of your glory. And Lord, our hearts, all of us here who are Christians, are for those we know and love who are not. We pray simply this, that in your mercy, you would seek and save those who are lost. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.